1: Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on Earth and its last and greatest wilderness on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. What do Antarctic seals and grime music have in common? This week I'll be finding out ...from Prem Gill, a polar conservationist and polar explorer... ...who's crazy about all things wildlife, sea ice and nature. Prem is a PhD candidate leading the Seals from Space project... ...with the Scott Polar Research Institute... ...British Antarctic Survey and World Wildlife Fund. He's also a researcher working on the BBC programme Frozen Planet. Beyond that, Prem is interested in increasing opportunities... ...for underrepresented and disadvantaged groups... ...in polar and conservation science... As the founder of Polar Impact and the British Antarctic Survey's diversity champion, he's used his research to spearhead projects which attract and retain talent from non-traditional backgrounds. He's hosted week-long citizen science and hackathon events. He's also used the sounds of Antarctic seals to produce, you guessed it, grime music. what kinds of seals are there and how are they different i mean i mean the amount that i know about seals beyond their general amazingness in terms of what they look like and everything is that i know that weddell seals for example are the ones that everyone thinks of as cute and amazing and lovely to look at and you know there's perfect sort of cylindrical round things essentially um and then there's the leopard seals which are something else entirely in terms of slightly more sinister creatures and uh, that's what we hear anyway tell us the sort of the the main types of seal and which one's your your kind of uh, personal favorite
2: okay yes yes so uh you've mentioned i guess the two the two big players that everyone knows the very very adorable weddell seal um and the the slightly scary but cool leopard seal
1: um but I mean, they are scary but uh, a little bit aren't they i mean i mean I don't, I don't i'm not just trying to anthropomorphize here but they are
2: slightly scary. i do i mean i think it's the lack of visible neck on a leopard seal it's just Shoulders and muscles and head <laughs> and teeth. <laughs> Which, yeah, and it does have a slightly serpentine uh, look to it, and it does have a bit of a. Yeah, a bit of a grin going on, which yeah. which at certain angles is cute, at other angles not. Yeah, not not so great. Um, a bit creepy, I would say. But um, yes, no, but but for me personally, I I, I love all the seals, of course. Um, and I guess within uh, the groups you've mentioned, there there's six species of seals in Antarctica. So you have your fur seals and your elephant seals, which really drove the early exploration of Antarctica because they were being hunted for their fur for markets in you know. China, New York, uh, London. You also had uh, elephant seals um, being hunted for their oil. Um, But outside of that, you have the ice seals. Now, they weren't really hunted um, extensively. There was no sort of commercial... Sealing industry based on the ice seals, um but they are, you know, amongst the most numerous seals uh, globally. So you have the crab eater seal, there's the Ross seal, which is very small, um very rare. I think there's only about 70,000, uh, an estimated population of 70,000 for the Ross seal. So they are the most, well, actually, no, leopard seals, there's only 30,000. So you have your Ross and your leopard seals, which are both. Um, relatively rare they're quite solitary um and we we really don't know much about the Ross at all i mean i myself I, know, I, I just know what it looks like and that's about it um and then yeah you have leopard seal which is the biggest seal species to exist it is it is big it's muscly it's bulky it's actually more like a it's more like a fur seal in its sort of build than it is a um weddell seals, so it's it, just to say there's a distinction between um fair seals and sea lions and what you call true seals the ones without ears which are the crab eaters the weddles, the rust and the leopards but yeah leopards are a bit more built like a fair seal and um for those who have been to antarctica we all know the fair seals are um well i don't know what's the word they're, they're quite um Athletic creatures compared to uh, a, a a chubby little Weddell seal, and they can chase chase a person down a beach and run as fast as a human down a beach. And uh, yeah, they have quite quite a bad bite from from what I hear.
1: <laughs> they can chase a person down a beach. That's not that's not what I want to hear. <laughs> if I'm honest, um, how did you get interested in in those animals? I mean, of course, we all love seals because they're beautiful and cute. But but what got you into them?
2: Hmm. So, my interest in seals began with uh, witnessing the world's most rarest seal, which is the Mediterranean monk seal. And this was during my undergrad at Cardiff University studying marine geography. And uh, we were in Greece doing field work. And uh, we, we had a report that, you know, monk seals were in the area um however we were aware that these were really elusive and shy animals um and that typically it was extremely difficult to spot them because they would normally be hiding away in these secluded coastal caves um however i did spot one and it was on a sunbed surrounded by tourists um an actual sunbed Yes, it was just lounging away on a side <laughs> uh, surrounded by tourists who was just, uh, yeah, just, just having a great time eating kebabs and drinking beer.
1: Cocktail in um, a slipper.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I, I saw that scene and I thought to myself, well, wow, um, if this is how easy it is to monitor the world's most rarest seal, how easy would it be to monitor the most common seal? And it turns out that the seals were the highest... Um, abundances are the seals within antarctica and they're actually super 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 difficult to monitor simply because they live in uh, within that sea ice region which is notoriously difficult to access and monitor
1: and, so, and but, but go go back even further what got you interested in in uh, marine biology in the first place were you someone who was always um every school holiday going off into the sea looking for Creatures and things to look at. Were you were you constantly watching David Attenborough go go around the oceans? What what was it that got you into all of that?
2: Yeah, so you've just um, that's a good question, and you've you've just uh, mentioned one of the reasons, which is definitely watching a lot of nature documentaries. Um, but for me, it was a weird mix of uh, playing a lot of Pokemon games. So um, as a kid, I, I didn't really engage in the countryside that much. My, my parents are from the Punjab, they're from India um, and even though they themselves are from quite a rural region, I think a weird thing that typically happens with a lot of um, sort of immigrant kids is that uh, in the UK, engaging with nature and doing recreation with nature suddenly uh, yeah, it, it's just quite a foreign concept, so it doesn't happen that much um, but, but with me I was a big fan of playing Pokemon And that got me really interested into the concept of sort of, you know, finding, searching, researching wild animals. And at the same time, it
1: suddenly makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then at the same time, um, I was watching all these nature documentaries where I was aware that, hey, in England. I, you know, there's owls, there's badgers, there's foxes, there's seals, there's all these amazing creatures, which to me were, you know, more or less Pokemon, um, because I didn't see them in real life, but I sort of knew they existed. And then I, yeah, I suppose the countryside and nature became this really interesting, exciting, uh, almost mythical place, uh, because of that weird mix of really becoming intrigued by it, but not actually getting to visit it. Um, And that really uh, May be quite interested in exploring, and uh, wishing to understand these regions and get a better, you know, just a better grasp of what's going on. Um,
1: I, I suppose. I suppose if you say that. Um, as as a as a child then the communing with nature perhaps wasn't seen as something that you did just just because that you know we we do what our parents tell us to in many respects don't we and um, we we see what they they show us uh, and i suppose if you don't see it then your journey into marine biology is you know as far away from that as possible isn't it so it's it's like it's you're thinking there is stuff out there and i want to go and see it as far away as possible and you've chosen the furthest place that you could possibly choose to sort of actually do your research which is which is as ambitious as it gets So uh, it's quite impressive uh, all the way in Antarctica. Um, So, yeah, so you're you're, you're marine biology, PhD. And then, you know, of course, you're you're making documentaries now as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, It has gone full circle. I remember when I was in my first year of my undergrad watching the original Frozen Planet Um, And I remember even discussing some of the scenes that got me interested in orcas from Frozen Planet in my interview uh, to go to Cambridge um, to study my uh, PhD in Antarctic studies, looking at seals from space. And now I'm working on Frozen Planet 2, 10 years later from the original. Um, So yeah, it's really gone full circle and um, I'm in a very, very, very privileged position to be able to do this during the pandemic and sort of put my research on pause and look at the polar world from another lens.
1: So you can't get away with calling a project Seals from Space uh, and making it sound very sci-fi without explaining what that means. Tell us what your project (laughs) actually is.
2: Sure. So my project is the um, study of Antarctic seals using uh, very high resolution satellite imagery. And essentially for this, I'm studying seals along the Antarctic Peninsula, one of the most rapidly warming regions of the world. And we're using satellite data that is so um, high res, it's 30 centimeters per pixel. Um, that not only can we see seals, we can see baby seals. And if a seal has just given birth when we take the images during the breeding season, you can even see blood on the sea ice from where the seal's given birth all the way from space in these satellite images. So, this is essentially, yes, it's a super sophisticated way of counting seals, and it's a really cost effective way, and it's a really safe way of counting seals because. Prior to um, investigating the uses of satellite imagery to count uh, seals and penguins and so on, uh, all of the wildlife monitoring in Antarctica was done from planes and ships. And as you can imagine, this is something that costs quite a lot of money. It can be dangerous at times going into the pack ice regions. And um, as a result, you also have quite a large... um, Gap in between surveys. So there's a lot of spotty data because of this. And as a result, we don't really have robust population trend data or even robust population estimates for a lot of the Antarctic seals. So the hope is by using satellite imagery and investigating how accurate this technique is and really um investigating all the different ways we can explore not just the seals and their habitat across the whole of Antarctica you can begin to start getting um, an insight not just into the population trends but also what drives their distribution and um, what's happening with their habitat. Hello I'm Camilla Nicholls CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet and even adopt a penguin at UKAHT.org. Or search for the uk antarctic heritage trust thank you and enjoy the rest of the podcast
0: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
1: In this series and the previous one, we've talked about um, the history of Antarctica in terms of how it was first, you know, imagined and sighted as a by, by whalers essentially in the Southern Ocean. And commercial sealing was all, sealing was. Well, let me say that again. It sounds like I'm talking about decorating now. Uh, <laughs> 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 let me say that again. Um, but seal hunting, commercial seal hunting, was also part of that whole. Uh, that whole period in this sort of late 19th century and beyond, before Antarctica was explored by the people, you know, that the, 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 are famous now, Scott and Amundsen and, and all of those people. Um, I'm just curious about uh, how we got to the point of protecting seals. I mean... All wildlife in Antarctica now is pretty much protected, um, seals especially. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, w- what sort of happened between the sort of violent, vicious age of sealing and, 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 and killing everything we, ca- we could to now, you know, very carefully monitoring these beautiful animals from space?
2: yeah um so you brought up a very 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 interesting topic um and just to say i could be completely wrong on this but i think it was actually uh the hunting of seals so sealing like you said i think that came before the whaling um so i find i, I could be completely mistaken but i the way i understand it is that uh early reports of these really um large populations of seals on islands such as south georgia from explorers like james cook um, in the late 18th century that's what drove um the very earliest exploration of antarctica so um james weddell for example who um has the weddell seal named after him and the weddell sea he was one of those uh, early seal hunters and um like you said it was it was interesting in that on one hand um yeah it was violent people were killing seals, depleting them at incredible rates. I mean, within uh, upon South Georgia, uh, the population of fair seals, for example, they were pretty much de- depleted within decades. And then on other islands with smaller populations such as the South Shetlands, it only took three seasons, so essentially three years, for that population to become decimated itself from its discovery. So you had this uh, this this exploration of Antarctica being driven by the fur seal trade um, by markets in Canton in China in in Europe in New York, um, uh, but as I mentioned, those those populations of fur seals um, became depleted very quickly, um, so it just didn't become very viable um, once the population was decreased so heavily. So you had a closure of the sealing industry, and it was after that that a lot of legislation came in to protect the seals. Um, So some of the earliest uh, legislation was within the Falkland Islands, I believe, which had a complete ban on um, fur seal hunting. And then after that, you had, in the 1970s, a um, conference held in London um, and essentially, you had the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Seals. That was that was created, that was signed, and that uh, banned the hunting of fur seals, elephant seals, and rust seals, which is a very, very rare seal. Um, and it provided uh, quotas to catch the ice seals. So, uh, Weddell seals, crab eater seals, leopard seals, there were quotas to catch those. But I mean, really, there wasn't any sealing since the 1950s. Um, And the only sort of seal hunting you really had was for dog food. So scientists were still killing seals um, after the 1950s to to feed the dogs, which were used in uh, early Antarctic exploration and research. But the removal of dogs occurred in 1994 because there was worries that a distemper virus could be spread from the dogs uh, to the seals. Um, so really since 1994, um, seals have virtually been um, you know, fully protected. They're not hunted anymore. And it was around the 1970s, 1990s that we started to get, um, uh, I guess modern comprehensive uh, studies of seals going on um so yeah that that's the kind of journey
1: you're you're a researcher who tracks seals and um, goes to some of the most extreme places on earth to do this sort of thing um but you're that but that's not that's not all the things you're doing you're, you're also looking at ways to make polar science more accessible you're very active um as a science communicator and trying to get young people involved in this sort of uh, in in these in these ideas in the way that you were inspired by frozen planet and other places just tell us a bit about the work you're doing on that front um your polar impact project what what does
2: that aim to do polar impact um also known as the minorities and polar research network is all about highlighting uh supporting and connecting minorities um indigenous people people of color um, from within the polar research community and really just sharing um who they are what they do and try and change the um the traditional sepia-toned images of polar explorer and try to give this fuller richer picture to show that it's it's been this um field which is in some ways always been Uh, quite diverse quite global um not just recently but also historically and at the same time also support uh ethnic and racial minorities who are currently within the polar research field
1: and so how do you do that well what's um what kind of events or what kinds of things are you trying to do on that front
2: we do a whole variety of things so um we, we try to provide opportunities for um People from uh, underrepresented groups to gain polar experience, and one of those ways, uh, I, I've, I've and one of the ways in which I've done that is I hosted a citizen science um, project where I got funding um, from the British Antarctic Survey to host twelve students from underrepresented or disadvantaged backgrounds to come along and work with me in the British Antarctic Survey, where I taught them and trained them in how to use satellite imagery to monitor. Um, polar wildlife penguins and seals uh, while at the same time also gaining um, some data by having them map uh, the sea ice habitats and the seals within my satellite images and uh, that was a really amazing week and I also provided them opportunities to meet uh, lots of amazing senior polar scientists over coffees and so on Um, so I taught these students how to go about studying polar wildlife and it, it provided them something that's a real privilege and it's something that's very difficult to obtain, which is the privilege of being able to make a connection and study polar wildlife, which typically has only been restricted to people who go down to the poles. But looking at these satellite images, they were looking at colonies that no one else had ever laid eyes upon. And they were the first people to see that seal, to see that pup, to see that's that amazing. colony. Yeah and that so that
1: was really amazing well, they con- and they, they they were contributing to the actual the conservation work there were they
2: yeah so they were contributing to a research project that's with the University of Cambridge the British Antarctic Survey WWF so you know these big uh, towering names within the world of polar conservation, they were all significantly contributing to that research. And with their help, um, even after lockdown, I sort of had this little army of trained up volunteers. We continue doing research throughout lockdown and we, we've built um, one of the first very high resolution sea ice habitat data sets for Antarctic seals um, from that from that and they were you know there are all these young sort of students who had no no experience of polar research prior to this um but but not only did they uh get trained up and uh, in sort of the -the state-of-the-art uh techniques that gave them a a avenue into polar research conservation even though you know for a lot of them they perhaps don't have the means or the capacity to uh have lots of exotic field works and exotic locations all the polar regions but they were trained in high impact conservation. Uh, they, they were trained in techniques that would enable them to have high, to, that would enable them to potentially conduct high impact research with regards to polar conservation. And the proof of the pudding for that came on the final day. So on the final day of this week-long uh, citizen science project, I had to go to Barcelona to present at a conference. And I, uh, my supervisor, Peter Fretwell, very kindly took over and uh, sort of, you know, uh, watched the students for me and helped them out. And because my supervisor was, you know, away from his office in a different environment, he he began to just, um, I think perhaps perhaps maybe out of a bit of boredom or out of interest, he began to look at uh, some satellite imagery in just some different random locations and he ended up discovering uh, these brand new emperor penguin colonies um so not only did my students get trained up in the skills to um monitor polar wildlife they were there when this big discovery was made um and i, I think you know but very quickly my supervisor wrote that up into a uh, paper and submitted it to nature and so on and then it came out and it was this big Big, big, big news story, and there were so many uh, <laughs> phone calls going off to my supervisor, and yeah, my my students had that experience and I was quite jealous that they were in the room when a brand new Emperor Penguin colony was discovered I have to say
1: I need to take a deep breath here because you've just listed so many things and I can't believe one person can do all of these things in, in, <laughs> no, in, no. In, in a normal amount of time so you're doing a PhD and you're researching uh, in a, for a documentary series and you're doing about seven different projects to bring uh, underrepresented groups to Antarctica virtually uh, and, and through science and um, so, so I mean, I, I find that incredible that, uh, that that you're doing all those things. So, you know, I, I, so thanks a lot for your time right now. I feel like I'm taking you away from one of these really important projects, to be honest. <laughs> but can you tell me just in the moments we have left? And um, you mentioned uh, just now um, explorers of colour, and mm-hmm. and in, in the past century, uh, and even now. The history of Antarctica, as we've said so many times in this podcast, and as anyone who's expressed any interest in it knows, is very white. The history is very white, and the history is very male. Um, we've talked a lot in the series about how women started to get opportunities to explore and then, you know, get onto it, uh, start to get towards an equal footing um, with men in the past fifty or so years. And it's not seen as a strange thing at all, and it should never be that the women on the continent now, being researchers and scientists and engineers and all sorts of other things, um, is there still uh, a, a sort of an issue in terms of people
2: from non-white backgrounds in in, in Antarctica? So what I would say is that um, yeah, when it comes to polar research, I think one of the issues is. Um, in terms of just the image of who a polar researcher is. And as you've mentioned, it's often, you know, the the, the go-to image is often a um, perhaps wealthy, white, bearded, sepia-toned image of a man who's been funded by the Queen uh, to go on a, um, you know, polar expedition. Um, and that, you know, certainly isn't the case. Uh, now we, we have um, a whole variety of people across the globe conducting paler research and even within nations there's a you know much wider cross-section of society involved in paler research but there's still definitely an, Im- uh, an issue of that image and i think for many people um for, for many for many children in particular from a very young age i think you your beliefs of who you can be and what you can do can be driven by simply what you see and in particular what you don't see so if you don't see women polar explorers if you don't see polar explorers of color it's really easy to just presume well that's not what i what what i'm capable of that's not what i i can do that's not
1: open to me yeah
2: yeah yeah so um one i mean one of the main reasons i set up polar impact is for the few uh, ethnic and racial minorities who are currently involved in polar research, is to really provide support to them to ensure they're retained because it's not—it's not a new story of having uh, ethnic and racial minorities in polar research. They've always been involved, but there hasn't necessarily been that retention um, because there has been potential issues. So I hope to provide this network to support people and enable to and you know basically retain these individuals who will become future role models. And I think so many of the role models when it comes to polar researchers and people of color, unfortunately, at times it can be people who have left and then they've become role models, um, You know, after their careers are finished, I suppose, um, where I want people who are sort of existing in the uh, polar research environment, who are people of color, presently to be able to just exist within this field and flourish within this field to be able to, bec- uh, to become those future role models. And over lockdown, I've been giving talks at schools. And I think one very sad thing I've noticed is that if I give a talk at, say, an independent school, where the teacher might be someone who has friends like me, who, who work on Frozen Planet 2, who have PhDs studying polar regions, who might have worked as tour guides on polar ships, when I'm talking to their to their classroom, to their children, those kids will often ask me, you know, what can I do to be like you? How do I become a polar explorer, a polar researcher, a SEAL scientist? Whereas if I give a talk to a school in, say, a state school in a bit more of a um, working class area, those children won't ask me how can we become a polar explorer. They'll just be really excited to talk to me. And they they're essentially saying thank you for sharing this experience with us because we'll we'll never experience it. And the teachers too, not not because of any fault of their own, but they too, you know, say stuff like, you know, thank you so much for sharing this. It must be amazing to be this person. And it's a very, you know, there's, there's they're much less likely to ask, how can we be you? Because I guess yeah for a lot of working class kids being being a polar scientist is a bit like an astronaut you know people do it but not you <laughs> and
0: yeah
2: i guess for other people um it's 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 a viable thing because you know people who do it so i hope
1: I hope yeah. you do i hope you're um uh, i expect you're the kind of person who even if you're not asked how to how to become a polar explorer you'll tell them anyway just in case I will. of course uh, you will. i'll i'll so tell that's them your one man uh, well, one man escapade let you go without asking you about um your art installations though so as well as all the other things we've talked about as if that wasn't enough to be doing i have you've been making art installations um with seal sounds and grime music now you'll have to forgive me i'm not a grime aficionado so you're gonna have to explain what it
2: is first of all and then
1: just tell us about the project
2: yes 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 so um where do i even start okay where so, do you
1: start that's a great I know,
2: question we're, we're... <laughs> okay so grime music is a genre of music from east london created by the black community there and it's influenced by a whole bunch of stuff like um garage and rap um and and jungle but it really for me it's something i grew up in my uh, teen years and a, a lot of grime music was made uh, on, on it, was, it was all made on computers and even on game consoles sometimes in youth clubs. So a lot of grind music has a very um, almost retro, synthy, almost kind of like electronic sound to it if I want to really generalise. Um, so that's what I grew up with, hearing those sort of electronic-y noises, um, which I was a big fan of <laughs> for my musical taste and then um yeah I, I began studying antarctic seals and i came across a video of an antarctic seal making some noises and uh, for those of you who haven't heard what an antarctic seal sounds like um it's very it sounds like the lasers in a sci-fi 70s um movie it sounds like a spaceship laser it's very oh, i, I didn't, it's very otherworldly it's very weird it's it's just People, Some people tell me it sounds like the Doctor Who opening theme tune, but a whole host of descriptions. But it's just these otherworldly cosmic noises. And um, <clears throat> another thing I noticed is that um, not only do the seals make these really weird otherworldly sounds, but we also have a base in in, in East Antarctica called Halley, which um, has a space weather radio station. So the radio waves that are related to the sudden lights and are picked up by a very... Low frequency radio receiver, when you sonify those, it, it, it creates sounds that essentially sound just like the Antarctic seals. Um so I thought, oh, that's cool. Um the southern light. It's all coming song, together. It's yeah, all it's all coming, coming together. together. So I'm like, oh, seals, space. They sound the same. This is great. And um around this time I was sort of giving my this is during the first year of my PhD, and I was invited to give a talk alongside um, some very important, impressive people from the departments of the uh, European Space Agency and these other amazing organisations and companies. And I thought, I like oh, where this is I, going. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought I'm the only student and I was I was very worried nobody would be listening to my talk. So um, to get around that, I created a little pop quiz where it's like, here's some sounds? Is it seals? Is it space? By the way, my PhD is seals from space. Um, that was the idea. <laughs> so yeah, I I went ahead with this pop quiz, which is great, and I use it as a way to also get rid of all my anxiety before any talks. So it works brilliantly. Um, and yeah, I I, I gave the quiz, and uh, someone came up to me from the Iron Turing Institute who makes techno music on the side. He was like, "Hey, let's make techno music," and I said, "Let's do grime instead." and then suddenly this whole project just grew out of it and um, we're looking to include VR with other members from the Ellingering Institute and it's just, yeah, it, it, it's just snowballed into this very, very crazy thing. And when I was down in Antarctica, actually, I was trying to, <laughs> trying my best to collect audio recordings of the seals as well as all my scientific uh, measurements of the seals using my FEB and my um, uh, field spectrometer. Uh, senses. Um but yes, yeah, sorry, I've gone on a really weird tangent. Have you got have I,
1: you got a DJ name?
2: I don't. I don't I mean I, my, my, my friends I, I do need a grime name. My friend Jules, he he's the he's the man behind the decks on all of this. He has a very fancy studio, but um I mean I guess I sometimes I, I <laughs> go on go so on it, it was gonna come out. go on well, this is not my name but I do sometimes I, I, I there is a weird demo proof of concept album out there by an artist called Seal Z which uh, yeah it's Seal plus Storm Z and yeah it's all very very uncool um, even I know that Storm Z is a very famous chrome
1: artist even I know that so, yes, so, yes yes so Seal Z Seal Z I'm hoping that uh, when we edit this that right now people will be listening to a bit of this uh, Sealsy music. Why does Antarctica matter to you?
2: Antarctica and the Pale Oceans, it drives um life as we know it today society as we know it today uh, all the fisheries across the world they're driven by you know the nutrients exported from the southern ocean the currents that uh, transport heat and nutrients all, all of this is driving the world as we know it today it impacts everyone globally the polar regions are the regions which are changing the most rapidly they are some of the most sensitive regions and they all have some of the most largest impacts across the globe so Antarctica can't not matter. It it, it drives everything.
1: Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica Insight programme, celebrating and reflecting on the past 201 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The Antarctica Insight programme is supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer and the music and sound design is by Alec Hughes.